That was great singing. In fact, um, that was one of my favorite thus far psalms uh, from the Trinity Psalter put to a tune that is familiar. If you would please turn with me to Psalm chapter 20 as we continue in our summer series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. I'm not going to begin with prayer, um, but we will pray in just a few moments. I'm going to begin instead with a question. Do you, right now, right at this very moment, have confidence in prayer? Now, I don't mean confidence in prayer that you believe in prayer or trust in prayer as some kind of ritual at best or superstition at worst, but rather that when you pray, as you pray, you are confident. Notice, I didn't say arrogant, haughty, proud, but rather confident. Are you confident when you pray? Some of you may remember, uh, we mentioned it a few weeks ago, uh, several weeks in a row, that John Calvin, the great reformer, observed that the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And in his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this. I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need, and next from faith in the promises of God. It is by perusing these inspired compositions that men will be most effectually awakened to a sense of their maladies and at the same time instructed in seeking remedies for their cure. In a word, whatever may serve to encourage us when we are about to pray to God is taught in this book. As an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, the Psalms, I believe, open us up so that we can see what's on the inside. It provides language for us to express what's going on that others can't see, that we ourselves at times can't see. But we might as well also say that the Psalms are medicine for our soul that can close us up as well, heal us, keep the infection out, as it were. The complications are, are mitigated. Psalms open us up, and they close us up as well. Well, today's psalm, I believe, will help us examine ourselves to help us discern if we are confident in prayer. Now, not only will our psalm help us diagnose our present condition, it will also help us treat our condition 
through a reorientation and realignment to a biblical view of the practice of prayer. With this in mind, let's now go to the Lord in prayer confidently, asking for his help, assistance, and aid in understanding his word and applying his word to our lives. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do come before you not in our name, but in the name of Jesus. We thank you that we have access to you through Christ. And Father, in Christ, we have both humility and boldness. And so we come humbly and boldly to you now, Father, asking you that you would open up your word, that we could see it, hear it, understand it, embrace it, and live it out. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to send your Holy Spirit now that we could understand your word and have the desire and a growing ability to put it into practice. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few words of introduction. Uh, Psalm 20 is known as a royal psalm uh, about the king. Uh, we saw that back in Psalm 2. We'll see that next week in Psalm uh, 21. Many people believe that Psalms 20 and 21 are connected, not so much based on the historical situation, but rather thematically, uh, like two panels connected by a hinge. Psalm 20 is the prayer, and Psalm 21 is the praise. We'll also see that today, Psalm 20, and next week, Psalm 21 are corporate. Uh, there, there's a more we and our in it than say what went before. You remember last week at the end of chapter 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, it's not wrong, of course, to have that kind of language in Scripture. And, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, we'll see Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here on either end of Psalm 21, 20 and 21 are kind of me and my. But here, this week and next week is more we and our. The Church of England in 1662 published what is known as the Book of Common Prayer that you will notice every week we, we put out a little short uh, kind of thought, a prayer uh, before the service begins. Well, in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, it has forms of words for communal worship. Uh, in other words, liturgies, forms of words put together for worship. And in it, there are, there's a section of prayers for various circumstances and situations. There is, believe it or not, a prayer entitled, In the Time of War and Tumults. And I think that would map on to Psalm 21 very well. And here, next week, uh, we might see Psalm 21 expressed with this title from the Book of Common Prayer, For Peace and Deliverance from Our Enemies. Psalm 20, in particular, is going to help us, I believe, help us read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, correctly. Because the Bible is a completed book with one message. And our approach to the text will be co to consider three horizons. And uh, the outline didn't make it in time to be printed, but here's the outline. Uh, the Old Testament historical situation, 
the New Testament fulfillment in Christ, and thirdly, the present day application. The Old Testament historical situation, the New Testament fulfillment in Christ, and thirdly, the present day application. Let me go ahead and read Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May He answer us when we call. So here's the the first reading, the Old Testament historical situation, the original horizon. What is the situation? What are the circumstances? Well, the specifics are unknown, but what is known in general is this. Preparations are being made for a battle, and some of the preparations have to do with prayer. As I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament historical books give some idea of what God's people did before a battle. They prayed, they fasted, They sacrificed, they implored the God of heaven as we heard from that passage in 2 Chronicles 20. Before they looked out at the battlefield, they looked up to heaven for help. Throughout Psalm 20 are several voices. There's the king speaking. There's a priest speaking. Or some representatives speaking. And there's the congregation, whether they be people in general or the army in particular, that is speaking. So let's look at the first five verses. Prayer for the king. Prayer for the king. In fact, I was just thinking about this. Uh, Paul tells Timothy that pray for the king. Pray for those in authority. So that what? The church can live quiet and peaceful lives, right? We pray that often. Prayer for the king. The people are addressing the king. They're adding their prayers to his prayer for victory. You see, may the Lord answer you, king, in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you, king. May he send you, king, help from sanctuary. It's that idea that people are praying for the king. They are praying that the Lord will do several things. That First and foremost, that He will answer the king's prayer. Because the idea is the king is praying as well as the people. That the, king, that the Lord will answer His prayer. That the Lord will protect the king. That the Lord will send help and support and aid. Notice, may the name of the God of Jacob 
protect you? Why, why the God of Jacob? Is that just an extra word in there? Well, no. I believe it recalls an incident recorded in Genesis 35.3 where Jacob speaks of the Lord answering him on the day of my distress. Here, the people are before a day of trouble. Some translations before a day of distress. And when the Lord, the covenant name of God, I am who I am, the name made known to Moses and the people, when you hear the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, here is the end, as it were, the God of Jacob. We're reminded, God's people would be reminded that the Lord is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. You guys have friends that make commitments to you and friends that break commitments to you, don't you? We all have that, right? And we are sometimes that kind of friend, right? We, we make a commitment and then we back off. That is not like the God of Jacob. He makes a commitment. He sticks with it. It was kind of like our prayer of confession. This is who we are, but this is who you are, God. You stick to us even as we are prone to wander. So in the first five verses, there is prayer for the king. Jump with me down to verses four and five again. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. The king is making plans. They're asking the Lord to ensure that those plans are carried out. May we shout for joy over your salvation, your rescue, your deliverance. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. Kind of like the victory banners. We want to we set them up as a, a testimony to, to God's faithfulness. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Because King, you are praying and we are praying with you. Now beginning in verse 6 through 9, it changes from prayer for the King to confidence in the Lord. Um, a participant, um, some say a priest, others say maybe it's the King himself says this, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. There was prayer and now there is confidence. It's assuming that the King's prayer will be heard and the King's prayer will be answered. The speaker here has confidence, has assurance. Now remember, this is a prayer of David the king. And earlier, David, that young son, that shepherd boy, right, went up against Goliath, the enemy of God's people. And in 1 Samuel 17, we read these words. I come to you in the name of the Lord. He continues, the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. If anything, David entered into that battle with great boldness and confidence. His eyes were not on himself, on who was facing him, was not on the, the type of weapons he had. His confidence was in the Lord because he knew that it was the Lord's battle just as generation later with Jehoshaphat, the king knew that the battle 
is the Lord's. We read in verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In the name stands, of course, for the person and for His revealed character. We're, we're trusting in who the Lord is. Who the Lord has made Himself known. We're not trusting in Himself. Now I want you to go back to verse 6. Now I know that the Lord, the one that they are trusting, the one in whose confidence they are placing, the Lord saves His anointed. That's an unfortunate English translation. It's good, but you could probably say this even better. The Lord has saved His anointed. We would say it's past tense. In language studies, it is a uh, prophetic perfect in which the, the future is so certain that it's described as already happened. Now I know that the Lord has saved, in other words, His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Going back to verse 7, it's important to know that yes, Israel did have a military at that time. They weren't opposed to using physical things. They just didn't trust in them. Some, the pagan nations around us, trust in these instruments of war, chariots and war horses, but we're not like them. We're not going to be like the pagan nations around us. We are going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. And in verse 9, this psalm ends, O Lord, save the king May He answer us when we call. That's how the, the translation I'm using, the English Standard Version states it. The New International Version says the exact same thing. The New American Standard, King James, New King James, say something like this. Save, O Lord. May the King answer us when we call or on the day we call. It's all dealing with where particular things are pointed and punctuation in Hebrew as to how you best understand it. But either way, the people are looking to the Lord to save the king. They're also looking to the Lord to save them through the king. Because here at the beginning of verse 9, O Lord... It is Yahweh, save. You are the covenant-making and keeping God saved. And, and that really looks at all the first five verses. And then the last part of uh, 9b is, is the confidence expressed. Uh, may He answer us when we call on the day when we call. So in verse 9, a principle is made clear that appears throughout this text and other texts, and that is this, the principle of representation. As the king goes, so goes the people. 
What's good for the king is good for the people because the lives of both the king and the people are joined. Interestingly, there's an incident in David's life recorded in 2 Samuel 21 where David's men actually didn't want him to go into battle because they feared that the lamp of Israel would be extinguished. In other words, they didn't want David to die on the battlefield because they figured if David died on the battlefield, they would die also. There would be no future. So this principle of representation, the king's fortunes and the people's fortunes. Now this is a very quick, brief first reading of Psalm 20. We begin here, but we don't stop here. Otherwise, this sermon can and probably has been and will be preached in a synagogue. And no faithful Jew would have any problem listening. However, the New Testament writers, be they Paul or Peter or John, make it clear that the Old Testament is about Jesus. I was reminded by a book that I think I've got, but I haven't read, called Jesus on Every Page. I can't wait to read that book, Jesus on Every Page. But it's not only John and Peter and Paul that rightly understand that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus himself. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, before his ascension, uh, Jesus makes that clear. And this is what many of us believe is an interpretive key to all of the scriptures. If you need to go to a key text, go to Luke 24. He's speaking first, the risen Christ, to two men on the road to Emmaus. And he says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then just a while later, in speaking to his disciples, we read this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you still, when I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It, there's a lot of times I would want to be back in some narrative of the, the, uh, of the scriptural account, right? But wouldn't it be great to be there when the Lord opens your mind to understand the scriptures? Well, wait, wait a minute. Isn't that what happens when we come to faith in Christ? He opens our minds to understand the truth. We didn't see it, now we see it. We didn't understand it, now we understand it. We used to run from it, now we run to it. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. Indeed, those men on the road to Emmaus, their hearts were burning. So now we go on to this second reading, this new horizon, the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We looked first at the Old Testament historical situation. Now, the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Psalm 20, the entire Old Testament leans forward to the arrival of the promised Messiah. Children, what is the Old Testament? Promises made and the New Testament? Promises kept. Yes, 
And I want us to look just all briefly at two aspects of the person and work of Christ that I believe stand out from Psalm 20. First, Jesus is the anointed king. Verse 6, now I know that the Lord has saved or saves his anointed. Now, whether it's in Acts 2, where Peter is preaching to unbelievers, or whether it's in Acts 4, where John and Peter are, are praying with believers, they are recognizing that Jesus is the king to which David looked. He's David's greater son. He is the, the promised king, the anointed one, the Messiah the Christ, the King. Indeed, as we looked at Mark's gospel, remember a lot had to do with the kingdom. Why? Because in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, 14 and 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand because the King is here. The King has arrived. This is the King to which this psalm leans and looks. So all throughout the New Testament, you can get evidence that supports the fact that Jesus is the anointed king to which all the law and the prophets and the psalms look toward. But secondly, Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice. Turn back with me in, verses in verse 3. One of the prayers of the people and the king himself, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. It's interesting here, the role of priest and king is kind of brought together at times. The king would be the one who's authorizing the priest to offer the sacrifices. And here before battle, the prayer is that the Lord would remember your offerings and regard with favor, be pleased with your burnt sacrifices. Well, as we know from the New Testament, all of the sacrifices, the sacrificial system is all pointing toward that one great, all-sufficient sacrifice. If you don't believe me, read the letter to the Hebrews. Just a couple of verses. After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and in particular Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The people are praying that the offering would be pleasing and acceptable, that the sacrifices would have their intended effect. And the New Testament writers, Paul, as he writes his letters to the church, is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus Christ his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection. And right in the middle is that, that perfect sacrifice. He is the acceptable sacrifice. As you read Psalm 20 with New Testament lenses, as it were, you see that because Jesus is the Savior, that we, that we really need this fully God He's king, he's, he's fully man, he's, he's sacrifice that we can have the confidence in prayer that we need. 
So you see the Old Testament historical situation and the New Testament fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, as we move into this third area called the present day application, I want to remind us about Bible study basics. Uh, many of you, all of you, have been in Bible studies and, and you often uh, want, you're around a group of people and, and you hear this, well, I think this and I think that and this is what it means to me. But let me just remind us of some Bible study basics. Uh, observation. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? Interpretation. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And application. How does it apply? How does it relate? How does it pertain? How does it affect? How does it concern? Observation, interpretation, application. If we misunderstand, then it's going to be automatic. We're going to misapply. That's why you can't just look at Psalm 20 apart from looking at it through the lens of its fulfillment in Christ. Otherwise, it makes a fine synagogue sermon. Paul writes at the end of Romans this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Stan, I appreciated you leaving, uh, leading the time of prayer. Uh, expressing through your voice all of the concerns of our hearts. But you know what? If we'd really opened it up, I think many of us could have added to the request. Because many of us, in one degree or another, right now, your hope is fainting. I mean, this past week, was there a moment when you were ready to give up? To call it quits? The scriptures were given, Paul says, so that we might what have be instructed, of course, but for endurance and encouragement. Well, my friends, we're going to spend the next three to five minutes getting some encouragement from this psalm. Present day application. Let's consider that. Two principles. Remember earlier we heard the principle of representation. Well, now we need to mention another principle, a, a doctrine but more than that, a glorious truth. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Paul is all about being in Christ. Read Ephesians. It's everywhere. John Calvin in his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, in book three, this is some of what he says to introduce book three. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Union with Christ. Christ in us, us in Christ. Our study in Galatians, remember taking justification by faith personally. I have been crucified with Christ I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A personal expression of union with Christ. Well, there's two things I want us to just briefly reflect on. First, the promise we believe. The promise we believe. Look again at verse 6. 
Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now I know. Every translation starts it off. Now I know. Not I know now, but now I know. Now. I didn't, but now I know. Well, what do you know? Well, as a Christian, you know that the Lord saved God the Father, as it were, saves His anointed. He saved Jesus. Now, Jesus rightly says, I lay my life down and I can raise it back up. But the majority of Scripture gives the understanding, rightly, that the Father, as it were, saves Jesus. I mean, who does Jesus pray to the night before His crucifixion? He's praying to His Father. Not my will, but Your will be done. Father, be with me. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And what does God the Father do? He rescues, He delivers, He raises His anointed Jesus, but also He raises and delivers us, right? Because there is a sense that all Christians are anointed as well. Well, wait a minute. What are you saying? Well, I'm saying what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has, ready, anointed us. And who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. The Lord saves His Son. The Lord saves all of His people. And Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Oh wow, we don't have time to unpack that. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, set aside, set apart, anointed for a particular service. And then John in 1 John 2.20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So what do we believe? We believe the promise. The Lord saves His anointed. But not only is there a promise for us to believe, there is a position for us to take, a posture for us to assume. Look at verse 7 again. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You guys know our postcard, right? It's on our website. To be human is to worship. And what's the question? Who or what are you worshiping? Well, guess what? We've got a new postcard to be human is to what? To trust. Who or what are you trusting? Everybody's trusting someone or something. Everybody's worshiping something or someone. As I mentioned earlier, it's one thing to use chariots and horses in battle. It's another thing to trust in them. Well, we aren't in the time of chariots and horses, but what are the things right now you're going into battle confident in? Finances, reputation, intellectual ability. What is it that you're leaning on, trusting in? Um, Friday morning, I had the opportunity when I was out in the community to, to meet someone, and he asked an interesting question. Um, how did you end up being a pastor? Well, 
I love that question, by the way, just to let you know. Um, it's great to be able to answer that. But I couldn't actually go to being a pastor. Why? Because I had to get to being a Christian first, right? So I got to tell them a little bit of my story of coming into faith, coming to faith in Christ. And part of my story was um, after growing up in a great home and thankful for everything, growing up in the church, super family, all this stuff, in college, the big man on campus in high school showed up and he was a small man on a big campus. And a lot of things that I leaned upon, trusted in, academic ability, social ability, athletic ability. I couldn't even make the club team in sports, okay? All of the things that I was leaning on, trusting in, got kicked out from under me. All the props, all the substitutes. There was one thing left standing. And what would that be? Jesus Christ. Not a prop, not a substitute. The only stability you and I could ever have. The original, the one and only. Because God alone is able to bear the weight of our deepest trust. And God alone will never let us down when we place the full weight of our trust in Him. And we see that proved in Christ. If He did not spare His own Son, how much more will He also provide everything we need? My friends, we humble ourselves in prayer and yet we are confident in prayer because humility and confidence are joined in prayer. We don't have time, but we could go to Ephesians 6, standing in the battle. They're getting ready for battle. How do you stand in the battle? On your knees in prayer. And finally, the prayer that we pray. Confident. Three times the name of the Lord is mentioned. The name of the Lord our God. And we pray in the name of Christ. It's not magic. It's not superstition. It's not good luck. What does it mean and why? Well, good questions. Here are some great brief answers from the larger catechism. What is it to pray in the name of Christ? To pray in the name of Christ is in obedience to His command and in confidence on His promises to ask for mercy for His sake. Not by bare mentioning of His name, but by drawing our encouragement to pray and our boldness, strength, and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and His mediation. You see, Jesus is the mediatorial King. Representing us before God and God before us. And the next question is this, why are we to pray in the name of Christ the answer is this, the sinfulness of man and his distance from God by reason thereof being so great so that we can have no access into his presence without a mediator and there being none in heaven or earth appointed to or fit for that glorious work but Christ alone, we are to pray in no other name but his only. You see, our text says, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We're not like the pagans. We're like the believers. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And my friends, what is His name? Jesus. So we've looked at Psalm 20 through three lenses. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and the present day. The psalm ends where it began and we will go on and continue where it ended. Psalm 20 ends, when we call, or on the day we call, matching how it began. 
in the day of trouble, the day of distress. And the way of assurance and victory in Christ is to meet distress with prayer. Humble, confident prayer. Until Jesus returns, we are all living in the day of trouble, in the day of distress. And while we are living in the day of trouble, may we be confident in remembering that the battle we face in the world around us, the weakness we possess in and of ourselves, and the strength that God provides only through Jesus Christ, may we never forget that. May we remember that. My friends, the day of trouble is the day of prayer, confident prayer, made in the name of the one we trust, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song, this prayer that your people of old prayed on the eve of battle. And oh, Father, we thank you that there is the anointed King, Jesus himself, who leads us into battle. And Father, we praise you that he is victorious. He has won the battle. And we indeed do follow our King into victory. Oh, Father, may all glory be yours alone as we pray. Not arrogantly, not haughtily, not proudly, but boldly and confident in the name of Christ. Amen. We respond today by singing.